Welcome to the Axial Podcast. Axial is an early-stage investment firm based in San Francisco. We partner with great founders and inventors investing in early-stage life science companies often when they are no more than an idea. Axial is fanatical about helping the rare inventor who is compelled to build their own enduring business. Okay, I think we're put, record, Hans. Well, uh, it was great to chat up last 10 minutes or so about kind of just like debriefing and everything. But uh, how are you? Thanks for doing this. I'm doing awesome, as always, I like to say. <laughs> well, you've been, I'm really excited to talk because uh, you've been at MIT for like a relatively short period of time and been hyper-productive. And so I just wanted to have this conversation and discuss your research around you know, machine learning and molecular dynamics and then kind of what, what else is on the horizon. Um, but maybe to like backtrack it and just understand your research a little better. Maybe you can talk about your story briefly. Um, and you kind of started your career off at Munich and you've been at MIT for like seven months or maybe two months, but maybe all in all seven months. Um, yeah. How did you get involved in like science and, you know, how, where did your journey begin? Um, so how I got involved into science and the, where my science journey began. That was basically in, so I, I started my, my master's at T T Technical University of Munich in like 20, 2019, October 2019. And then in October 2020, I started my first like research project where just, yeah, we, uh, we need to do this uh, interdisciplinary project at, um, at TUM as part of our courses. And then there, I just reached out to a. So most people, I think, do it at some company, but I reached out at to some lab at the university, and asked them um, if they want to supervise me for a project. And I proposed. Uh, like I read a few papers, and I was watching Yannick Kilcher's videos. In case you you know him, um, and had some ideas on projects related to. To proteins, and yeah, they were a bioinformatics lab. I proposed a few projects to them, and then in the end, we ended up working on subcellular localization prediction, which was absolutely unrelated to the things I proposed, but yeah, it was was interesting to me. So, yeah, that was my, my first research project, and I guess I absolutely loved it, <laughs> and then decided that I want to do a PhD. Cool. And yeah, then I just you know, finished that project in around, I, think, I guess, February. And then in March, I had to write my master thesis or I was looking for a project for a master thesis. And yeah, for, for that, I actually in, um, in 2020, I went to my first conference. Okay, I went to, I just uh, attended the online NeurIPS 2020. And yeah, from that, or there, I met a bunch of people and asked them if they want to supervise my master thesis on this or that topic. Cool. And uh, they agreed. And then I wrote my master thesis with them. And um, that was the 3D Infomax paper, which is now also published at ICML. And 
yeah, after my master thesis, I or during my master thesis actually. So that was this now the summer 2021. I um, had to yeah, was reading all of these geometry processing papers, and one of those was a paper by Octavian Garnier, um, who I then in we, we get we got some ideas. I uh, while we while we were talking, I implemented those ideas and uh, sent him the results, and he seemed to like that. Uh, and yeah, Octavian was here at MIT um, uh, when we when we were talking at uh, about his papers or about his paper, and yeah, then. I mean, he, it's, he seemed to like it that I just uh, implemented some of those ideas, sent him the results. When I then asked him for an internship in October, he said yes. And at the same time, yeah, then in October, we started working on Equibind, this other paper that I guess we'll be talking about. And yeah, then I wrote my applications to a bunch of universities. And in, in February, I was accepted to a bunch of universities and then decided that I would join Tommy Yakula and Regina Basidai. Yeah, at MIT. And that's, I guess, where I am right now. Because I started my PhD a little bit earlier, actually, than, um, than yeah, usually people start in fall, right? But Tommy offered me to start on June already, and that, that's what I went for. Cool. I think, yeah, I think uh, it'd be great to dig in deep into Infomax as a way to kind of um, predict uh, kind of small molecule features and, 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 and using like a clever way to pre-train models and then Equibind as a way to kind of predict ligand binding to different targets and using a clever sampling, which I don't understand completely, even after reading the paper. Um, yeah, I mean, I kept, also the labs you're working in, I can't pronounce your last names. So I'm gonna, <laughs> I'm, I'm gonna have to rely on you for that. Uh, that really, I'll, I'll, we'll, we'll post the labs in the description, but their last names have like five syllables each. So it's just, uh, I'm not gonna try even, but uh, what, yeah. was the, <laughs> what was the logic you know, you're trained as a computer scientist engineer and you're making that you're, you're in Munich and you're collaborating with people. What was the kind of spark to point your kind of um, expertise towards problems involved in chemistry, biology, life sciences overall? What was that kind of spark that kind of got yeah. you working on these problems? So there are basically two, two main reasons. Uh, one is that I just think these areas offer very interesting types of data and are very methodologically rich. And you, uh, if you work on problems in these areas, you can come up or you have to come up with uh, super interesting algorithms or um, yeah approaches to to use uh, to solve the problems. And you can bring ideas from physics um, where a lot of statistics methods also were or coming are coming from you can bring ideas from physics into the machine learning world and 
build interesting methods and just make machine learning methods themselves, uh, general machine learning methods themselves better. And yeah, they, they you also have data types like graphs or 3D objects that you're dealing with instead of just the usual images, for example. And maybe then um, the priors or the, the the prior knowledge of how these objects interact and things like that you can build into your models. And that is, um, yeah, I think very interesting. But the other, uh, the, the second big reason is that I want my work to be impactful or like <laughs> this might sound, um, what do you call it? Like, like saying it from a high horse maybe um, but yeah i want the work that i do to be helpful for humanity cool. yes cool. Um, and what joshua calls it ai for goods i think yes i want to do ai for good so okay cool yeah. okay you know better than an iPad. So yeah. that's maybe not, not only AI, right? It is important to me um, that the work I do, like the my professional life or my professional work has a positive impact on humanity. Or it maybe also as positive as I can possibly do it. There is also this 80,000 hours concept that right you spend 80,000 hours in your in your life um, working like on average maybe I, I'm not sure how they came up with this number but um, those 80,000 hours you should or maybe it is interesting to spend them as efficiently as possible for improving um, or for bringing humanity forward Absolutely. And so on that concept of spending time, how did you, uh, on the machine learning side, I'm not an expert at all, I just kind of know a little bit and have friends, how did you determine to spend your time on graphs and graph methods and, and that kind of area of machine learning? Is there some sort of advantage there in terms of its, it's a relevance for chemistry biology or is kind of graph-like methods, is that where, is there a lot of kind of a, yeah, that's what I think. I, 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 I am of the opinion that um, we should build as much prior knowledge as possible into our machine learning models if we want to solve a particular task or a particular problem. If you want to build AGI, then sure, maybe um, or if you yeah want to build a general reasoning robot then maybe building in all prior knowledge that you have or as much prior knowledge as you can is not uh, the optimum but i think if you want to solve a particular problem that has uh, that is useful to in the real world then we want to build in as much prior knowledge reduce the space of functions that we have to model and bake in symmetries such that we can generalize to all symmetric cases and yeah using graphs is one way to do that right or if we 
have some data that is um, yeah that has a specific graph structure we can process the data ignoring that graph structure or we can use the graph structure and then there's the question of how to use the graph structure and that prior knowledge in the best possible way and there you then get into um, interesting yeah interesting graph neural networks and message passing neural networks and different approaches and yeah i just think this is then also a very interesting data type in itself which makes it interesting to um yeah, come up with new methods to process graphs better. Cool. That's pretty interesting, actually. Okay, so graphs allow you to maybe model um, prior knowledge more efficiently, and especially in biology and chemistry, that is actually really useful because um, we still have, a lot of the knowledge is implicit. Maybe we can use InfoMax as a case study of kind of the, that kind of using the power of graphs. And so maybe you can talk about InfoMax is like your first major preprint um, you know, in, in, in paper, piece of research, um, um, or maybe second after the, the, the first, first project. Um, can you talk about that story of InfoMax and how, how that project got started, you know, maybe to connect it to graphs and you know, using prior knowledge, maybe that was kind of a theme of the project, and then maybe talk about some of the discoveries and we can just go from there. Mm -hmm. So, so that that project we started in like March 2021, right? And um, that there I had my great uh, supervisor, um, or well, my great advisors, uh, Dominique Perini, Prudencia Tuso, Gabriele Corso, who's now my colleague, because uh, I joined him here at MIT, and uh, Pietro Liu, uh, also Stefan Gunemann, Tom. And yeah, basically I reached out to uh, Gabriele and Dominique to, and yeah, I, I read their very good, very interesting uh, principal neighborhood aggregation paper and also talked about them, their directional graph network. So I knew that they also were interested in graphs or working on graphs. And yeah, I, <clears throat> I, my position was basically I'm interested in working on, on graphs and um, applications to, to molecules. And that's then how we came up. We, we brainstormed more or less and um, we knew that we wanted to do some, um, some bring the power of pre-training to the world of um molecules right because we have very often in in the molecule world we have very little data yeah a, a small amount of data but the pre-training approaches that that are out there are often not very principled because they like just we just mask out some atoms or something like that and if you just mask out an atom and then you try to predict it with uh, similar to masked language modeling, right? Then, yeah, you can probably get right almost, um, I don't know, 80% of the time by just predicting that the atom that you masked out is a carbon. So, yeah, we, we just think that the 
uh, pre-training approaches that are were out there for molecules they weren't very helpful and yeah what's what is it and then the question was what is it that we could have as a pre-training task that would help the model make better predictions and help reason about the molecule well if the model knows about 3d structure then it could make you know, plausibly make better predictions about those molecules for tasks where the 3d structure is important so we devised this pre-training task where the in which the small mod uh, the model the model is trained to reason about the 3d structure of small molecules and then generates this latent 3d information which is it can then use to make better predictions for molecular properties and there we have 3d infomax so what was the kind of the, the why now in terms of there's uh, people kind of know, knew this is some of a problem where there's a lack of a spark, a sparsity of data, 3D data on small molecules and, or, or certain molecules because it's expensive to generate at scale. And, yeah. and, and then, uh, but there's a need to have better models. What was the kind of the breakthrough to train models to implicitly predict 3D structure and then improve predictive power? Um, and, in, and then maybe you can talk about the things you predicted because. Some of the properties were very uh, a little complicated uh, in terms of like you know various quantum properties. Maybe you can discuss kind of like that the readouts and what what actually improved uh, uh, for for the stuff you you kind of uh, were able to test on. Yes. So uh, for in our ev evaluations, we found indeed that for quantum mechanical tasks, the improvements were quite significant or like or sometimes or well what means sometimes there were the 22 percent improvements on average on the qm9 data sets for for example for predicting its properties if we did our pre-training yeah and um that's i would say makes sense for quantum properties right because it's an intrinsic property of a small molecule and if you, if you have um, information about the 3d structure then we've also seen um with models like dime nets uh, also from stefan Gunemann's group or um, spherical message passing or gem net they, which use the 3D structure of small molecules in a smart way. There we, there we've seen, um, but they need the ground truth 3D structures input, of course, which our method does not. There we've seen um, also large improvements on these quantum mechanical tasks. And uh, I think if you have like, an intrinsic property of a molecule, then predicting it while only having uh, or additionally having the 3d structure available uh, will help but if you now just have a small molecule and you try to um, you try to predict its toxicity without having any of the structures that it binds to 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 have its toxic effect. If we only look at the small molecule, and then if we additionally have the 3D structure, 
yeah, it might not help so much if we don't have the 3D structure of the molecule that it interacts with. And that is also what we found with 3D Infomax, um, where we then didn't see improvements with the 3D pre-training when uh, evaluating on tasks like blood-brain barrier penetration or the TOX21 challenge or um, well, actually, then there were tasks like solubility prediction again, or the lipophilicity, um, where the 3D pre-training helped, right? Because these are intrinsic properties of the small molecule. Yeah. I think the paper was a really elegant way to convey the power of pre-training in models, and then, uh, and at least for intrinsic properties of these small molecules. Um, and, and and what kind of what kind of uh, from that we, we published the research and we got accepted ICML so congrats on that or and so um, what what kind of what did that unveil did, did Infomax did you often great research role unveil new problems or new things to work on did that project set up Equibind or was Equibind totally separate or what did you learn from Infomax that then like set you up for the research you did later on oh well what did i learn from equi uh, from the, 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 the project i'm sure you have yes, yes, but it's challenges um, and whatnot and yeah it is just um so much that i'm not sure what i should pick up now <laughs> i definitely learned a ton in that project uh, from from writing a writing a paper to uh, well, of course, I've I've written the uh, another paper before, but yeah, there I really got into um, like the the conference style of writing a paper or the conference paper writing style, right? Because there was a a conference submission, uh, but. I yeah I also learned a lot about working together with um, experts from chemistry or and in industry partners. I learned a lot about um, interacting or reaching out to people and um, discussing papers with them, right? And like because that's something I did a lot in, in the summer or when working on this project. I read the paper of, of some people. I have had a bunch of questions about them. And then while previously maybe I would linger on those questions and fret about them and not find out the solution, there I really learned that most of the times researchers like talking about their papers and you can just reach out to them ask them if they have time to discuss their paper and oftentimes when you discuss their paper with them they're super happy that someone's interested in their work so yeah i, I learned not to be afraid to to ask um people to uh, if they want to discuss their paper with me um, what else did, did, you, did you start uh, a Hans if everyone a Hans is a really great reading group if you're a practitioner oh. you should uh partake in it uh did you start the reading group around this time or maybe yes, exactly okay, cool. um I, I had this experience that's um 
authors of papers are often very, very excited to talk about their research and very happy to spend time on that. And yeah, then I was looking for a reading group on graphs or about graphs. Uh, because I knew some reading groups about learning theory, I knew a reading group about reinforcement learning, but yeah, that, that were online, right? Of course, there are some graph reading groups at some university that the people at the university can go to, but I wanted a reading group that I can do, go to as well, that's just online and a Zoom meeting, and yeah, we can discuss a paper there. So. After a few months of not finding the reading group that I was looking for, I started it myself, I suppose. Cool. Okay. Congrats on that. Yeah, and, and maybe it's over the sidetrack, but uh, yeah, um, if, you, if you work on graphs, you should, you should uh, look into Hans's reading group. We'll, we'll post it in the description. Uh, it's, it's really cool. Um, any other lessons for InfoMax? Or, or maybe we can go to Equivine. Uh, yeah. let's, uh, let's go to Equivine. You just have your names, your papers. They're like uh, in, in America, there's various credit bureaus that do credit scores. And so there's Equifax. There's like various names. Uh, uh, there's like names of companies that like uh, do credit scores. And so your papers are kind of like uh, credit bureau names. <laughs> so, so Equibind. Um, and so Equibind was the paper you did at MIT. Um, yeah. And it really the breakthrough was really focused on ligand binding of targets. So you describe small intrinsic properties of small molecules. Mm -hmm. Equibind is more about predicting when small molecules interact with proteins. Exactly. And the key breakthrough is around sampling, which I still don't understand at all. So like, I don't have any insight on this paper. Uh, I, I, I've read it twice and I still don't get it. But maybe you could talk about Equibind, the story, and then kind of the, at least set up the paper and then we could discuss it. Yeah, so the, the task that we tackle in Equibind, right, is predicting the structure in which a small molecule binds to a protein, right? And this is interesting for biologists or for drug discovery, because sometimes if a molecule, small molecule binds to a particular spot of a protein, then the behavior of the protein has changed. Maybe some protein causes cancer, and if a small molecule binds to a particular location of that protein, then the abnormal or the, then the cancer-causing behavior of the protein is stopped. Yeah, and so this is a pretty pretty helpful task for drug discovery if we can predict the location where a small molecule binds to a protein or attaches to a protein, right? And <clears throat> What we do in 3D InfoMax, or what what previous approaches would always do, is they would try many many different possible locations where the small molecule could go, and then score all of these locations or like evaluate them, and then use the best scoring location as their final prediction. Right? But trying trying out all of these different positions takes a long time, and what we now do in, or what I think is the major takeaway of Equibind is that this is also possible, or good 3D structure predictions are also possible in a single shot if you build in the prior knowledge about 
how 3D structures could interact in, in a, a good way. Yeah, and yeah, this new paradigm of predicting this in a single shot makes the method much faster. And this is very important for drug discovery, where we sometimes want to make predictions for millions of molecules when we search through a library of molecules to find one that has the behavior that, that we would like. So when you, yeah. mean, when you mean single shot, so yes. rather than scoring a bunch of locations <clears throat> on the target and then find the best one, single shot, I mean, do you define the best one as the first result based on all the, the data you have? Or maybe that's not the, maybe that's too simplistic. No, that that's uh, that's it. Based on what, based on the data that we train on, we cool. uh, have a, a single shot prediction, and a single forward pass of our model that yeah, tells us, um, or that tells us a three D structure in which the small molecule probably binds to the protein. But that's of course. This isn't a solution to all our problems, right? This I would really see this as a. It's not the perfect method. I would really see this as a um, a demonstration. <clears throat> okay, well, you can also. It has also some practical, uh, real world, real world value, and actually, some companies are using it in their pipelines, and. Um, yeah, happy with are happy with some of the results, but the the main thing I see from the paper is a demonstration that it is possible to make these three you know, D structure predictions in uh, in a much faster way if we're using machine learning methods or with yeah yeah with these machine learning methods, and that this is something that we should also invest time in and look at and not only into improving the score functions with which we um, evaluate the different locations. Yeah. I think it's and kind of another theme of like uh, sampling better, but also having better, maybe on the back end, having better data. Yeah, but that's not what we're doing, right? We're not sampling better. Yeah. We're not sampling at all. Oh. And that's this new paradigm, which I mean, which we should also be looking at. And so to not sample at all, how do you? What's the bar, at least for the protein structures you're working with, for the data? How uh, what like how much like how, uh, how many more different like configurations you need to map out for a given target uh, to make you know to make it kind of to make single shot uh, possible? Um, yeah, we train we train with the same type of data that the um, previous methods trained with like the, with which these scoring functions are also often trained with because in, in the protein world right you just have data or like there's you have all the data that's out there in these um, uh, data banks like the protein data bank pdb with like i think around 180000 uh, protein structures which are like um, the, the known protein structures, as far as I know. And then we have PDB bind, which is a subset of that, which are, as far as I can tell, all the known um, structures of small molecules bound to proteins. 
and yeah, we use those for training because that's all there is out there. Oh, interesting. And so, is there like you know? I'm assuming there's some limitations in terms of some targets are not as well studied as others, mm -hmm. and so mm -hmm. a single shot is not going to be possible for maybe proteins or intrinsically disordered domains or something like that. There's always going to be a limitation yeah. in terms of our data. Yeah, let's let's talk about limitations of equipment yeah. because there definitely are um, a big um, limitations. I think so. First of all, I believe to um, to make a good a good three D structure prediction, what we what we really want is to uh, have some iterative approach, right? That that reasons about the the distances between the small molecule and the protein as the the small molecules maybe fit into the pocket or um, yeah where our small our model thinks it will end up also we know that right this whole thing is not an, or not in every case it is completely a hundred percent determined where the small molecule will bind up. It is a stochastic process, and it is a um, yeah, it's a probability distribution of where our small molecule is. And if we're able to model that, that would be maybe much better than having this uh, single prediction. So if we have a generative model over where the the small molecule could end up this would be super valuable and maybe much more helpful in practice and also reflecting reality much better yeah and and another thing is uh, that we are not able to deal with symmetric uh, proteins or right because currently we are always um even our training data we have a symmetric protein where the small molecule is bound on one side of the protein. Then, and our model predicts the small molecule now to be on the other side, which would be a just as good prediction. We will still tell the model it was wrong because in the training data, it was on the other side of the symmetric protein. And yeah, if you have a, um, it, it would be great to have a generative model that or yeah, not necessarily a generative model, but for example, and uh, that is able to tell us, yeah, with 50% probability, it um, will land over here, and with 50% probability, it will bind over there. That would be uh, a much better model of what's going on in reality. Cool. Yeah, I think every, okay, every new prom, every limitation is an opportunity. Yeah. So maybe we can transition towards what you see long term in the field of like machine learning, molecular dynamics, and, and more. Um, you know, you, you've worked on Infomax, Equibine. Yeah. Um, you know, what's what's on the horizon for you? What other projects yeah. you're exploring? Yeah, what, what's getting you excited? Yeah, that's that's also something. Um, right, I, I I've been thinking about that a lot, and also because I've. Uh, when asked that um, a, a few times before, I've been thinking about this, this question, and I, I mean, keep keep in mind that I'm uh, 
a two, two months in PhD student and another. Um, That's what makes you exceptional, Hans. You're two months in. You look at all you look at how productive you've been. So, yeah. okay, thanks. But still, I'm I'm not like uh, David Baker or Max Welling or whoever who have tons of experience and whose statements will be much uh, more um, valuable about predicting the future, so to say, if you want to go with that. But yeah, maybe I'll just say what I'm really excited about. Um, and that is that maybe in this direction of, right, we've spent a lot of time modeling individual molecules and coming up with better graph neural networks, for example, to process molecules and making prediction about a single molecule. But what I think is really exciting is to, to model molecular interactions and the, the, the dynamic nature um, of molecules while they are they are interacting which is of course core to the interactions of uh, in, in, many, in many cases and why do I am I so excited about molecular interactions and the dynamics of molecules there well that's because First of all, that is where a lot of impact is possible if we are able to, to model them um, because it's what's important in drug discovery. And right in, in the end, in, in applications, we're not only interested in um, what a molecule looks like, so to say, but we're interested in what it does. So how it interacts with other molecules. Yeah. and. The other thing, why the, the, the technical aspect of why I find this uh, very exciting is because um, when int modeling interactions, you run into even more interesting problems and yeah, mathematical hurdles to, to solve than when mo only modeling a single molecule. Because now you, for example, have yeah, two molecules floating around in space, and maybe you want to be uh, equivariant with respect to the initial placement of one of those molecules. Yeah, and these these symmetries that you can capture, they become a lot more intricate and uh, even more interesting. Cool. Yeah, I think um, and modeling small molecule protein interactions and protein protein interactions are mind-boggling if you really think about it in the context yeah, of a cell it uh, does not only have to be protein protein or small molecule yeah. protein that maybe often happen in the drug discovery world it can also be um how a catalyst interacts with some material if we're looking at the um there's this nice oc20 data set from um, the open catalyst uh, open catalyst data set that's yeah where we were trying to predict the dynamics of a small molecule interacting or coming close to some material yeah and there are many many different possible types of molecular interactions than just the the ones in the drug discovery world so to say yeah I'm a little biased but yeah, I think yeah Totally agree, and I think uh, you'd get along with Caddy Sar. I'll uh, I'll email her. She's gonna love you. Um, you'll, you'll, you'll get along really well with her. Um, but yeah, 
any final thoughts? But this has been really great. I think uh, great to have this initial conversation. And I I know for a fact you're going to do a bit more work. Yeah, it's going to be cool. You're going to continue to publish more research. I'm going to continue. I think we're all going to read it. Uh, I think you're only two months in. So it'd be great to have a conversation maybe two years from now. And, okay. and, you, and you'll be like, yeah, I have like 20 ICML paper. You know, I'm just. You know, you'd be a professor by then. Maybe you'll be a professor in two years. So, <laughs> well, um, I hope maybe I would even say that I've done something wrong if I have 20 ICML papers by then. <laughs> because, um, yeah, I hope I produce impactful papers. Maybe not not, not that many, but cool. really um, important papers. And this is also something. Yeah, maybe, maybe that is um, a good point to finish with because that's something that um, my supervisors always tell me, right? Tommy Yakula and Regina Basile, and but also Octavian, which is to to work on impactful or big and difficult problems instead of picking out um, a thought or an idea that one has, which can maybe lead to uh, the next uh, ICML paper. Of course, if, if that is one's goal, um, or like if one just is does research for the sake of curiosity, that is absolutely fine, right? That's um, many many people do that just because you're curious. Um, you work on on a problem and you just are playful and uh, explore the world of research out of curiosity and often oftentimes this also produces super impactful work but but yeah for for me this is only um or what means only the curiosity and the fun uh, of playing around is a huge part of why i love uh, doing this research but the the other part that's important to me in, in the research is um yeah, having impact and solving important and hard problems, and yeah, that is something that my my supervisors and Octavian also always gave me as advice is to yeah, to find problems that not everyone um, could could have solved and to work on problems that are actually important to to solve. I think it's a great way to end it. Hans, thank you for taking the time to do this. I'm gonna, I'm gonna press stop record right now and then we can chat up later. I really appreciate you taking the time for this. Likewise.